Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young-onset Parkinson's called Rebound. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader, audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's Foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. So I have a confession to make. And the reason I'm making it is something I learned from the Pacers-Wizards play-in game earlier tonight. I promise, this podcast won't be focused solely on that game. Because I don't know how much it really matters in the big picture. But I believe there's always something to be learned from almost any game. Although the key is not to watch the ball. The most interesting stuff, the telltale stuff, is usually happening elsewhere. The player off the ball calling for it, not getting it and shaking his head, the coach calling for a particular play and being ignored, the big men under the basket jockeying for position, trash talking, one of them throwing a subtle elbow. Once upon a time, riders sat courtside at the scorer's table or just adjacent. So you not only could see all that, you could hear what was being said. Even if you didn't write everything that was actually said, and there was a code that you only used what was relevant, and not necessarily a player using colorful language just because you'd heard it. It was understood. Athletes weren't always the politest of company in competition. Sounds so quaint talking about this now. The trade-off was if you paid attention, you could learn a lot about relationships and cover the team more accurately. You could also find stories that I believe served the fan by being their eyes and ears. I'll give you one quick example. Quite a few years ago, I was a beat writer for the Washington Post covering the Wizards. I can't remember who they were playing. I could go back in the archives and find the story and tell you, but I don't know how much that really matters. It doesn't to this particular story. Anyway, an opposing player drove to the basket and was fouled by Chris Webber. Gives you an idea of how long ago this was. 
The referee blew the whistle, took a second glance at the floor, and assessed a foul on Calbert Chaney. Cal came up to the ref with his palms turned up as if to say, why are you calling that on me? Now, I was sitting courtside at the scorer's table. And as a reporter, you develop certain skills. I became pretty adept at reading upside down. Better to be in someone's office, glance at their desk, and if their daily planner might be open on the desktop, see the name of someone they might have a meeting scheduled with. Keep valuable somewhere along the line. You also learn to read lips. I was pretty certain the ref told Cal that Weber had five fouls, meaning if he called the foul on him, he would have fouled out. This is another unwritten code. Refs at that time tried not to foul out stars if they could help it. Same went for if they called an iffy foul on a star. You could be pretty sure if there was another iffy situation, the star wouldn't get the foul called on him, or he'd be the beneficiary of an iffy foul at the other end. Makeup calls were a real thing. In the Lakers-Warriors game the other night, Draymond Green was called for an illegal screen that replay showed was a bad call. Now, what would have happened back in the day is teams would have gone to the other end and one of the other referees would have cleaned it up. He would have called a questionable illegal screen or some other call in order to get the ball back to the Warriors. It was done in the spirit of fairness. Everybody understood it and was okay with it. You can blame or credit Mark Cuban with that practice going away because he was instrumental in having statistics kept on individual referees. When he heard then head of referees Ed Rush talk about managing the game, he took offense. Referees shouldn't be managing the game. They should just be blowing the whistle, calling what they see. It sounds good, and I'm sure most fans bought into it. But they weren't managing the game for a certain outcome. They were managing the game to make it as fair as possible. But once you threw in the statistics on what calls they made, how often they made them, etc., referees were subsequently graded on what they were calling and how often. Officiating games became a matter of staying in the margins. I suppose you can blame me for the redistribution of fouls going away. Because while I was pretty sure the ref told Cal he was giving him the foul to keep Weber from fouling out, I couldn't just write that. I had to go to Cal in the locker room afterward and confirm what I'd heard. Cal, bless his heart, did just that. That led to me writing a story about the practice, which resulted in the league outlawing it. To be clear, Cal was cool with it once the ref explained what he was doing. After all, it was in Cal and the Wizards' best interest to keep Weber on the floor too. And I didn't write the piece out of disagreement with the practice. I just did it because it was part of the fabric of the game that I thought most fans weren't aware of. In the case of that play, I thought it was an understandable decision. It was a bit of a ticky-tack foul, as I remember. Overall, I was perfectly okay with referees weighing whether a foul merited a player being disqualified or not. This was also a time when referees had a lot of experience. They weren't as young, the whole crew, 
was not as young as they are today. Besides, in some ways, that kind of elasticity with the rules still happens. LeBron James accidentally fumbled the ball in bounds in that same Warriors game. The referee stopped play, gave the ball back to LeBron, and let him inbound it again. If anybody asked or wrote about it, I missed it. The story I did for the Washington Post would be impossible to pull off today with every interview being consumed by media collectively and only certain players being made available. Even in recent pre-pandemic times, it would be difficult because having a one-on-one conversation in the locker room these days is damn near impossible. Media are notorious for eavesdropping on other media members. Back in the day when all the media who covered a team knew each other, you didn't do that. You knew that you didn't want it to happen to you, so you respected the space for others. It was competitive. We were all looking to break stories, to do our own stories, but we gave each other space. And I get why it's changed. Access is so limited and the demand for content so great and the crowd of media with a camera or tape recorder or smartphone is so massive. It's a free-for-all. But there's no question it has definitely changed the terms of engagement. I salute anyone working as a beat writer today. The job has never been harder or more thankless. The reporters now working as newsbreakers, from what I'm told and have observed, don't even watch the games. They're texting agents and GMs and other sources of information about the business of the game. Poor beat writers don't have that luxury. These days, courtside season ticket holders often know more about the inner workings of a team than the beat writers because they can hear and see more than the poor men and women now sitting at the top of the lower bowl or higher watching from afar. It's the biggest reason I enjoyed being a sideline reporter for radio or TV. Because in most cases, though not all, you were still afforded a seat on the floor, often at the end of the scorer's table near one of the benches. In most cases, you couldn't use what you were hearing and seeing because TV sideline reporters just aren't afforded that many opportunities to be on air and there's some more unwritten code about what you can and can't report during the course of a game because you are a broadcast partner. But playing that role provided me material and insight that I could use in my writing. Now, if you are a beat writer today with a keen eye and if you know when to look where, you can still discover clues sitting 30 rows above the court, but it's a lot harder. This is what struck me a couple years ago when I sat in a row up at the top of the lower bowl behind the beat riders. They were spending every free moment when the action wasn't going on checking their social media feeds for something someone might have posted that they missed or composing a social media post themselves or grabbing a screenshot or video clip to add to their post. It was all in the interest of serving the fan in real time, and maybe it was smart, sign of the times, using the eyes and ears of fans at home or reporters elsewhere, but it seemed weird. You have people in the building covering the game, but not doing everything to cover the game. It felt very surfacey. The moments when the action wasn't going on for me when I was a beat writer 
was an ideal time to watch interactions that weren't necessarily caught by the TV cameras. Owners, realizing how valuable that real estate was for selling to the ticket-buying public, which I also get, moved the media up and away and added seats for the ticket-buying public. Now about that confession. Since I'm working more as an analyst and opinion giver these days, I generally watch games with the sound muted if I'm watching at home for several reasons. One, there are broadcasters that drive me a little crazy with their commentary. All too often, it sounds like propaganda to me. Too many former players either analyze the game based on how it was played when they were still in uniform, which I hope my Washington Post story illustrates how outdated that kind of analysis is. Over the last five years, the game has changed in particularly profound ways. Strategy, rules, everything. Hearing information dispensed to the viewing audience that is wrong bothers me. Even if the analysis is on point, I don't need to hear it. I'm paid these days to tell viewers and listeners what I see and think, so I don't want to be colored by someone else's or distracted reacting to what they're saying instead of looking at the game through my own unadulterated lens. During the Wizards-Pacers play-in game, though, I happened to catch Pacers coach Nate Bjorken talking to his team during a timeout. The Pacers were getting killed with transition baskets. So Nate told his team, hey, when your teammate shoots the ball, and then he literally pantomimed shooting a ball, that's an absolute sprint back. You guys are waiting and watching to see if it goes in. It's going to go in. Okay, let's make sure we're sprinting back on the flight, meaning the flight of the ball. They're getting one-on-one over and over. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Now, I should play the video, the audio for you so you can hear the tone of voice. That was a little troubling too. It was plaintive and not authoritative. You're probably aware of the rumors that Bjorken, a first-year coach, may be out because the players quite simply are not buying what he's selling. That announcement may even come before you hear this podcast now that the Pacers season is over well after hearing the snippet from the huddle I understand why I can't begin to tell you how insulting what Bart Bjorken said would sound to a group of pros and it's not what he said so much as how he said it 
This is the tremendous challenge for any first-time head coach, particularly one without a track record as a long-time assistant or having played in the league. Because he's coaching players who have been in and around the pro game a lot longer. They know how the game is supposed to be played. They know what works and what doesn't. So there's an art in getting a coach's message across without sounding as if he's talking down to his players. Nate failed in that snippet, and I suspect it wasn't the first time. Bottom line is, players played as if they weren't buying what Nate was selling. This is also why I'm amused when I hear fans complaining about a coach's substitution patterns or rotations, because they have no idea what a coach is up against. In a lot of cases, they're not coaching with a free hand. Every player has his own vested interest in how he's used, and he has an agent telling the GM what that is. GMs and owners are invested in retaining their best players, so they listen and often pass that along to the coach. So he's not merely juggling what he believes needs to be done in the course of a game. He's also trying to cater to entities more powerful than him. And this is not limited to the pro game either. I see it all the time at both the college and even high school level. Catering to talent, enduring reckless or selfish decisions, comes with the job, if a coach wants to keep it. The killer is that it may cost him his job anyway. That's why coaches are always angling to have control over personnel decisions as well. It means they can decide if a player's talent merits being catered to through the course of a game. Second confession. I did not expect the Wizards to beat the Pacers, based on what I saw in their loss to the Celtics two nights earlier. That's when Russell Westbrook was guarding Kemba Walker, and not doing a very good job defending him on pick and rolls. It's a thankless, physically punishing task to keep fighting over screens, and Russ just wasn't up for it. I assumed he would be guarding Malcolm Brogdon in the game earlier tonight, and I consider Brogdon even better at manipulating screens to his advantage than Kemba. Wizards coach Scotty Brooks apparently came to the same conclusion, so he took Westbrook off the ball and used Rui Hachimura, or even Bradley Beal to guard Brogdon instead. Hachimura, a second-year forward, was all too happy to do the grunt work, and Beal did a better job than Westbrook, sore hamstring and all. Being matched up with a power forward in Hachimura prompted Brogdon to also play a lot less pick and roll, thinking he didn't need a screen to get a step, and not wanting to risk having someone else switched onto him. Now, Brogdon got hit got his 24 points on 23 shots but whereas he had eight assists in 21 minutes against the Hornets he had only four in 29 minutes against the Wizards and the cross matching allowed Westbrook to get ahead of steam and transition before Brogdon could find him Westbrook made an adjustment as well his tendency when he struggles as I've noted before is to play faster which results in more reckless decisions. Against the Pacers, he played faster by making his decisions earlier in transition, passing ahead more than he did against the Celtics and bullying his way to the paint when he didn't, and then looking to pass rather than doing it on the run or in full flight. The cross-matching also gave him the chance to see everything earlier unimpeded. 
So after collecting only five assists against four turnovers against the Celtics, he had 15 assists against three turnovers against the Pacers. He still made some questionable decisions, but making them just a beat slower allowed his teammates to be in better position to clean them up. So there's the idea of playing fast and playing fast break basketball, but there's also a pace within that fast tempo and it's controlled fast breaks. Even Russell's shots were taken in a better rhythm. And this is what makes Russ so unpredictable. He's often his own worst enemy, and after all this time, he still reverts when you least expect it. Celtics game is an example. That's why I'm not at all confident that he or the Wizards will use this as a stepping stone to making their series against the 76ers interesting or competitive. The Sixers are a far better defensive team than the Pacers. They are fully capable of getting Russ to speed up his game more than he should. I can easily see him trying to combat their size and length by simply trying to outrun them. And I don't see that working to great effect. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United WeCast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We will have the Warriors facing the Grizzlies to see who has the honor of facing the Utah Jazz in the actual playoffs. And I'm sure we will get into that in the final podcast for the week. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.